Welcome to Cyberlera, um, Shepherd Bridgetown. And I'm Henry Dubois. Uh, and we're still friends. Um, Henry, how are you? How are you going? Oh, I'm doing well, thank you, Shepherd. Um, been a somewhat of a busy week last week. Yeah. Uh, got got up to a couple of social things. Nice. Uh, we had our food eating uh, challenge did, last week. I was going to say there was a victor, but there wasn't. I mean, I guess we, everyone involved everyone was a Everyone was a, a victor, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So that was quite nice. Uh, nice. Saw some friends, um, played some tennis. Uh, tennis? Yeah, nice. tennis. How's your backhand? My backhand is getting better, yeah. I have to say. I mean, I feel as though, like, the marker of a good tennis player should be a backhand. Because everyone, not everyone, but, like, forehand is pretty easy. Mm. But it's the backhand which sort of troubles people, I reckon. Yeah. Are you a two-handed backhand person or one-handed? Uh, I mean, look, I haven't played tennis in, honestly, like, 15 years. Or <laughs> oh, something. wow. Okay. Actually, sure. That, actually, no. 15 is probably about accurate. But for memory, I'm a, I'm a one-handed backhand. One-handed actually, like, backhand. No, that's, that's probably not true. Like, when you're a child, you're probably a two-handed backhand, yes. aren't you? Yes. Yeah, so I guess I'm a two-handed backhander because I last played and I was, well, okay. like, very young. Okay. What about you? I'm a one-handed backhand. Because? Um, I think it's because I tend to do more slice shots with my backhand oh, really? than anything, yeah. So, but aren't those more like defensive shots? They are, yeah, so they are. So you're not like an attacker off your backhand? No, I'm not an attacker off my backhand. Yeah. I try and set it up and wait for the forehand shot. Oh, really? Yeah. But does that leave you open? Because if you're always sort of wheeling around to hit the forehand... Yeah. And you leave, like, the whole court open, too. Yeah, know? it does. Yeah, it does. So, yeah, I mean, occasionally I do do a proper sort of backhand, but still one-handed. Oh, right? really? Yeah. Do you, do you think it just looks better? Oh, uh, I'm not sure it lo- looks necessarily the key ingredient to being good at tennis. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, Roger Federer has a back, uh, one-handed backhand. Yeah. He looks like... He's, he's just very graceful. Oh, he is. But he's also Roger Federer. That is true. <laughs> and, like, what about, like, Djokovic? Does he have He's a got a two-handed backhand. Two-handed Nadal? Yeah, but... Nadal is two handed backhand. Well, with him, his two, his backhand's actually his forehand. Exactly. Right handed. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, like he's he's right handed, but he just was he plays tennis with left hand. Exactly. Exactly. That's pretty. I don't like. Do you reckon it's worth it? Like, if if you had a kid mm. and you wanted them to be like good at say a sport, would you just make them use their opposite hand? I would. Would you? I would because oh. I they're, they're, I mean, in respect uh, to tennis, there is definitely a distinct advantage mm. to playing. Um, yeah left-handed because yeah because your forehand then will become or go into your opponent's backhand oh okay yeah so and, then, and like, assuming then people are general as you mentioned generally people are weaker on the yeah, backhand yeah, side yeah. if you're hitting a forehand usually if you hit it cross court yeah then it's the person's backhand right yeah but then conversely once won't, won't everyone's forehand come to your backhand side yeah but assuming that you generally are stronger with your right hand then your backhand wouldn't have greater power, right? Because you're naturally right-handed. Oh, well, but then, oh, so you'd actually need to have a two-handed backhand. Correct. Yeah, uh-huh. you wouldn't have a one-handed backhand. Yeah. Yeah, hence why Nadal's backhand is two-handed. Yeah. So, and yeah, then his, his forehand is left-handed. Does anyone have a... a f- um, oh, so he's essentially doing forehand, forehand, forehand. Exactly, right? yeah, yeah. Well, uh, effectively, but yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Does anyone have a two-handed forehand? Two-handed forehand? Yeah. No. Why? It's a bit odd. Because if you have a two-handed forehand, then wouldn't that mean it's, it's a backhand then? Because then your the front arm is actually your opposite arm that's crossing over, right? Wait, a two-handed forehand, forehand means is... you're a backhand. No, no, no. A two-handed forehand would mean that it's a backhand with your weaker arm. A two-handed forehand, depending whether you're left or right-handed. No, well, whichever, whichever, whichever side. 
So if, if you're a four, like if, if you're, you're a right hander, your forehand, one hand forehand, yes, then two hand forehand is your left arm over your right arm, like that. Yeah. Why? Well, Can't you just do the other way? But it's still, still your left arm would be at the front when you're going for the swing, right? It's still your non-dominant arm going first when you're Which going for the swing. Which makes it a what? Which makes it a backhand. No. It makes it a forehand. Wait, so what determines a backhand and a forehand? Well, well I, I would think that a backhand is when... So I would think anyway, I could be wrong, is whichever hand is in front that's leading. Or like which, yeah, the back side of your tennis racket, right? Yeah. So if you have a two-handed forehand, assuming you're right-handed, yeah. and you have your, your, you know, your left hand is going cross-boarding and hold, holding the racket, yeah. so then you're hitting mm. you, well, your left arm. So isn't that a backhand? Because the backhand is the... Yeah, but it's, also a, like, yeah, but it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a left-handed backhand, but a four-handed... Sorry, a, a right-handed forehand. Oh. Can you say that for the same if it's a backhand on exactly. the other side? What, yeah, so that's why I'm saying it's not like the classification is it doesn't doesn't work, right? It's like, yeah, it's but like, no one plays forehand with two yeah, hands. But so. it's, yeah, but it's like it's like it's like if you had a two-handed backhand, that's like saying that's your offhand forehand. No, right, a two-handed backhand. Yeah, right. two-handed backhand. Which one's your? Well, the one on the well, on, assuming you're right-handed, yeah. your right hand's on the front at the front, right? Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. So, and the purpose of the left hand, assuming yes. you're right-handed, is yeah. to support yeah. your right hand. Because well, it's the same thing as the forehand, right? Yeah, but but naturally you're weaker on your um, on yeah. on the extensor side of your body, right? Anyway, that's just anatomy, right? Yeah, that's a very long digression. If you're a tennis expert, you know, and you know about forehands and backhands and stuff, etc., yeah. etc., you know, send us a message, explain to us where we're. Hmm. Where we're blindingly ignorant. Yeah. Anyway, nonetheless. So, <laughs> do you want to move on to our uh, three segments? Yes, we shall. Uh, we start off with the old, I guess, our business idea segment. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I get you know, as uh, as has become you know the norm, spend some time just you know contemplating the old mechanism, um, mm-hmm. just as a quick sort of. Uh, rehash for our guests who have, by the way for listeners if you've joined at what well, this is episode 13 yes i would encourage you to listen to the previous 12 episodes i think they're you know i think they're of good quality i think so too yeah so you know listen and, and they're not that long we'll be what no. six hours ish correct so if you're in a nice long drive you know exactly. if you're running a half marathon exactly you're not taking six hours to run a half marathon yeah but even if you i mean by the way if you are no judgment because you're running a half marathon yeah. so good job mm-hmm. um you can run a full marathon and listen to all six hours Six, yeah, how many, how, I mean, long, how long would it take to do a full marathon? marathon? Probably like three, four hours, surely. For a full marathon? I, well, I'm guessing. Well, if you take five minutes per kilometre. Yeah. And what, a full marathon's... 42. 42. 40, yeah, 42, 41. Yeah, 42. Yeah, 42, yeah. yeah. So, so five times 42, 42 is what? 19, yeah. Two hundred and ten is about three hours, just over three hours. Oh, that's true. Actually. Yeah. Oh, I always thought that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, really. Five yeah. Oh, okay. Well, it's two hundred and ten. Yeah, it's just over three hours. Yeah. So that I mean, you could get your sort of half hour catalog in uh, the time it takes you to run a marathon. Exactly. So, might help you break some record. I think so. <laughs> I mean, look, I'd like to think as your sort of uh, well, <laughs> if 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 you view this podcast as pure punishment. And you decide you're not gonna stop listening to this podcast until you, until you finish um until you finish the marathon, then we might actually sort of spur you on to a, a personal best. Mm. 
Just exactly. to, you'll sort of run quicker to put yourself out of your misery. <laughs> Nonetheless, anyway. So yes, I was saying, well, if you do have some time, listen to the previous episodes. Mm. But yeah, just to rehash the mechanism that we've, um, well, this we, but I, mm. well, I am sort of uh, very, very, well, I sort of think about way too much and I sort of bore you with it. Anyway, so the mechanism essentially you have two markets, market one, market two. You have producers in market one, consumers in market one, producers in market two, consumers in market one. So someone would produce something into market one, make a slight profit, and uh, someone would buy something in market one. And then they'll sell it in market two at a slightly higher price. The price of market two is equal to the price of market one plus a profit made by the producer in market one. Um, and then the consumer in market two would pay, would pay that higher price. And then at some point in some future point in time, the producer in market one would pay consumer in market two, the difference between market one and market two. With the idea being, um, yeah, essentially the, the, you know, the person in market one who buys can sell in market two for a profit person in market two who buys um the price of market one should rise due to the arbitrage mm-hmm. and then they can you know they can sell it in market one then wait to get their money back at some future point in time and given that's the case the value of the contract in market two should rise as the value of the contract in market um, market one rises anyway yes. so since since so i guess last episode we talked about well in, in, actually in the, in the last few episodes we've been talking about sort of potential implications we discussed it in the context of um of debt. We discussed it in the context of um of interest rates. By the <laughs> way, I was listening to this um this YouTube channel called Economics Explained, mm. and they're talking about essentially they're talking about like sort of stagflation, mm. which is um uh where there's sort of stag you know where the where there's stagnation in the economy and inflation, which is like the sort of the, a really bad combination because. Um, if there's stagnation in the economy, you normally reduce interest rates. Mm-hmm. If there's inflation, you normally increase interest rates. Mm. If there's stagflation, well, then, like, what do you do? Because, Nothing. I mean, uh, whatever. You, I guess you in the middle. You, you know, you sort of, I don't even know. Wait, wait for the aliens to attack or something. Mm. Um, but anyway, they talked about how, um, like, issue, they, 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 they made this, um, I guess it was a throwaway line where they were like, look, we have to think about how governments pay back their money because mm-hmm. governments haven't got some, essentially some magic way to eradicate death. And I'm like, mm. well, <laughs> well what maybe about they the mechanism? Do. But anyway, um, <laughs> I digress. So yeah, sorry. Um, so the last few episodes we've been talking about like potential implications of the mechanism. Um, and I guess, you know, I've been, I've been sort of talking with some of our, some of our friends and our, uh, yeah, well, our friends <laughs> to, mm-hmm. about this mechanism. And I guess a, a, good, friend of, a good friend of ours, um, I was talking to, to, to him and um, I guess from that conversation, well, he, he asked a very good question. He, he essentially said, like, how does the, the, um, the price difference between market one and market two arise? And I guess, like, I guess we've, talk, we've sort of talked about it, but, I've, you know, I guess we've almost taken it for granted that there is a price difference. And then I started to think about, like, the importance of like, explaining the price difference in sort of much more explicit and, like, commonly understood sort of, Terms and 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 and, uh, and ideas, mm. and my response to to the actually I think I've responded. I hope I have. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, no, I have. Yeah, the yeah. the response was um like this. Essentially, you can view the the price difference between market one and market two as a result of a subsidy that producer one pays to consumer. So producer one in market so producer in market one pays to the consumer in market two. And where does the subsidy come from? It comes from the profit that they make from selling their product in market one. And then from there, I start to think like, okay, let me start to think about like, 
putting this mechanism in a in sort of in a sort of in a much in in in, in you know as such, let me sort of how do I frame it instead of thinking about sort of practical implications let me frame it in like a sort of very sort of academic context and think about like what sort of existing academic principles or like terms can be used to describe what's um hmm. uh what's um what's going on in the um going on in the mechanism and as a result I've sort of put together a little uh I don't know what to call it, like an article, I guess. <laughs> and I've entitled this, The Impact of a Subsidy on an Arbitrage Involving Goods with Perfect Cross-Elasticity. Mm. So that's what I've, um, <laughs> yeah, that's what I've been, been doing. So, yeah, I've sort of written that. And, and essentially, like, what, what I, or this is what I hope to set out in the, in the articles, I sort of set out, I sort of at least explain the, the definition of a subsidy, explain what, a, what an arbitrage is, in addition, sort of discuss the idea of price elasticity, or especially specifically cross price elasticity, and the idea of substitutes, mm, mm. Um, and hopefully that sort of provides some more sort of um, sort of basic economic grounding for the idea, and hopefully makes it easy for people to understand. Because I think, like, I mean, you know, I think to sort of the average person, if you sort of explain it to them enough, they'll understand it. But like, if mm. you're sort of in the academic world, you sort of probably need things to be framed in a certain way. For you to um, for you to understand it. So hopefully that I mean, I think you know you have kindly agreed to to sort of go through it with a fine tooth comb and just mm. make sure it makes sense. <laughs> and hopefully we can release that on the uh, old webcito sometime soon. Mm. Yeah. Let it out and let the people yeah. interrogate, critique, exactly. yeah, explore, yeah. provide yeah. feedback. Yeah. Hmm. That 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 is interesting. I mean, I think framing it at a more theoretical level probably will also help with. Uh, thinking about how the mechanism could potentially be applied and what I think you mentioned, you talked about the implications and I think yeah. framing it at a level of generality probably helps with that. Exactly. And I think it also helps with sort of arriving at the conclusion, which gives rise to those sort of rather, well, potentially bizarre implications. Cause, um, cause I, you know, I talk about the idea of substitutes and, mm. and the idea of, um, um, sort of price, price elasticity or sort of cross price or cross elasticity or cross price elasticity and so essentially like these so substitutes are like uh well uh are sort of two things that can serve the same function and changing price of you know when 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 two goods are substitutes changing the price of one affects the demand for the other mm, mm. so if they're two goods you know whatever good a and good b and they're both substitutes increasing the price of a will increase the demand of um of, of B because mm. whatever, if A and B can be used for the same thing A is more expensive we just go and use use B for that thing mm. uh, and then I started I start to think that like you know arbit- in, in an arbitrage obviously the goods are substitute, substitutes because they're exactly the same whatever they're essentially the same thing mm. so I was like why doesn't cross price elasticity apply for in, 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 in an arbitrage because like in a sort of traditional arbitrage, you have, you know, one market and another market, they're different in price. And then the price in, you know, if it, whatever market one has a lower price sub to market two is buying one and selling two. Mm. So the price in market one should increase while the price in market two decreases. And I thought, well, how come it doesn't, like, how come the, the, there's an increase in price in market one, but then there's no increase in demand in market two. Mm. But then it's like, well, because the price in market two is higher than price in market one. So, it wouldn't make sense for someone to be like, "Hey, look, the you know, pr- price in market one has gone from a dollar to a dollar ten, but price in market two is still has gone from 
dollar fifty to a dollar forty. Mm-hmm. Now let me go and buy in market. So you still buy yeah. in market in market one. Market one yeah. But the difference is in this mechanism, we essentially equalize the prices because a subsidy is given to the consumer in market two. So that means the people in the consumers in market two are paying the exact same price as, as the consumers in market one. Now because they're the same price, increasing the price in market one should result in increasing demand in mm. market two, right? So if there's an increase in demand of any good, what should happen? The price rises. Mm, mm. So that's another way of showing that the price in market in market so the price in market one will rise because of the arbitrage. The price in market two will rise because of the cross price elasticity. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So that's like another way because I guess the other question is yeah, I mean like something that we've discussed I guess but I mean I assume on here but also just like privately is like how would the price in market two increase or why should it increase? And this is another, like, more sort of fundamentally sound mm. um, explanation. Because I guess the, the other explanation that we've been sort of, you know, we've been sort of going with is the idea that you can buy in market two and then, um, and then um, you know, sell in market one as a price rises and then just wait to get your money back, mm. which is true. Mm. And that should give the, 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 um, the contract in market two sort of its, its value. Value, mm-hmm. But you can also think about it as like, these are perfectly substitutable goods. As you increase the price of one, what? Mm, the, the other, demand of the other should increase yeah. because they're just like the same thing. Hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned that mathematically, this can also be worked out and proven, I guess. Yeah. Well, mm. oh, well, as in, well, so, well, so yeah. So, so mm. I guess my next, my next, uh, you know, sort of uh, article slash paper slash, <laughs> you know, sort of, uh, uh, sort of word vomit <laughs> will be um yeah talking about something we talked about um oh now now sort of a few weeks ago mm. um or a few episodes ago I should say um talks about like you know sort of how much these contracts would be worth so I'm thinking mm. about calling it something like you know pricing good J because mm. good J is the example <laughs> which I've used in the um in the article but the the, the idea is how, how how do you price how do you price these sort of um, securities or contracts mm. of goods traded in market one? And I think we've just discussed mm. discussed it before, like the idea that um, that the price should approach um, should approach infinity. Because yes. the idea being, um, if you buy in market one, sell in market two, you're making a risk free mm. uh, profit. Mm. Now, in normal arbitrages, an equal. So anyway, sorry, sorry, sorry. Just a couple of couple of basics. Like markets sort of function till reach equilibrium not function but like you know whatever markets reach a stable point when once they reach um equilibrium, equilibrium mm-hmm. right so the question mm-hmm. is when will this market reach equilibrium mm. normally in in an in a sort of arbitrage situation where there's a difference in, there's a divergence in price in two markets mm. the price where the price is low right the price rises price where the price is high the market where the price is high mm-hmm. price falls Cost, until yes. The two prices are um Equals, are equal, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in 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 sort of the mechanism that we've we've discussed, the sort of you know you tell the the price has sort of been has been sort of set different, like you know the price has sort of been artificial, not artificially, but the 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 there is a price difference that results from the the um the subsidy, mm-hmm. right? So the question is, when is an equilibrium going to be reached? Because there's no real reason why the price in market... Like, we know that the price in market one will rise, mm. but then why would the price in market two 
fall. Now, there, there, will ne- there won't be a decrease in demand in market two be- um, because, as, as we've said, like, so demand will increase, mm-hmm. actually, I should say, demand will increase in market two due to cross-price cross um, elasticity, right? Yes. So because there's sub- sub- substitutes, increase mm-hmm. the price of one, mm-hmm. and increase the demand of another. So mm-hmm. we know that demand will increase. Now, in normal arbitrages, the price falls because supply increases in, in the secondary market. Yes. Now here, um, the supply of the the, the, the supply market two, the maximum supply in market two is equal to the maximum supply in market one, because mm. to be in market two, you need like whatever the good or the service, like you need mm. the security. Acquired but, market one, yeah. But you also need the subsidy from market one. Mm-hmm. So someone has to sell something in market one, or the producer has to sell something in market one, and then transfer the subsidy in addition to the to mm. the, the the security to be sold in market two. So the supply is sort of capped in market in market two so you know you're not going to get the increase in supply but you get the increase in demand which should result in an increase in price and you're not going to get a decrease in demand because it substitutes and you can't get an increase in supply so given you can't get a, de- a decrease in demand and you can't get an increase in supply that means the price won't fall anyway mm. that's all to say how are we going to get to the equilibrium if the price in market two can't fall even though the price in market one can rise the equilibrium is reached when the um, the difference between market one and market two, which is a risk creator return, mm-hmm. can be obtained in another in another context. So essentially, like when can you make a risk free rate of return equal to what you can make in this mechanism? Mm-hmm. That's when the equilibrium will be reached, and that's when the equilibrium price of the contract in market one will be reached. And the question is, well, like. What is this value? Now, I guess oh, sorry. How do you get this value? Mm. Now, the way Al would get it is you think about the um, the risk creator return. So the difference between market one and market two. What is it? And how much would you need to say deposit in a in a treasury bond, which is the sort of mm. the um, de facto risk creator return? How much would you need to deposit to get that mm. in the same amount of time as you'd get the um, the the difference difference between market one and market two? Right, so we've mm. I think we've, we've talked about yes, this we've before. Yes, we talked about yeah. Um, so so essentially, like infinity. yeah, exactly. So mm. like the shorter it takes to sell between market one and market two, mm. um, the more you would need to invest in the treasury bond mm-hmm. to get that same amount of money in that unit of time. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be my next sort of uh, let's call it paper. Just talking through that. Mm. Yeah. Well, I do have one question about what do you. Um, you you mentioned so the timing element could be infinite. Yeah. What about with respect to the actual good? Yeah. That someone's buying guess in market that, one. That's the point. Like it, it doesn't matter. Like mm. the point is like the the value is derived from the from the mechanism, not the system, not not the not the actual good. Mm. And I guess that's that's a value of sort of making it more sort of uh, sort of discussing it in, in sort of broader mm. uh, in, in in sort of in a broader sort of mm. I guess more, more academic context as opposed to being like yeah how do we apply it to this specific field mm. it's being like mm. this is what it is these are its implications yeah. and oh by the way look you can apply it to literally anything mm. and this this will mm. results yeah I guess even without the the good itself I mean I, I would assume then you know whatever the, there will be an element in market one mm. uh, is there so whatever elements that are being sold by mm. you know, acquired by a um, person in market one mm. 
is there a limit, mathematical limit, or like minimum with respect to that? Because it surely has to be greater than zero, right? Because assuming the good is a mathematical number, there has to be. As in like a quantity of it. Yeah, a quantity. Yeah. So you're saying it doesn't matter. What if there's just one? Or like you're drinking one contract. Surely it can't work, right? Yeah, but, there'll be, no, yeah, but there's no yeah. incentive to just sell one. Like, because you'll be able to make a profit, there'll be incentive to sell more than one. Yeah, but ma- mathematically, you'll have to be greater than one. Okay, like yeah, zero, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, like I mean, like if there's zero of anything in a yeah, market, yeah. then the market doesn't yeah, exist. Yeah. So it has, like, it has to be. It's like one. Yeah, there'll be, I mean, and, and, and be, I mean, I'm sure. Like, assuming this works, there'll be way more than one because mm. be like, I can just make money from nothing. Mm. So everyone is not everyone, but whoever can will just produce whatever, mm. whatever it is that's being sold. Mm. Anyway, I feel this. This is a lot of. Uh, you know, we went long on the tennis discussion and we went very long on the business discussion. You know, let's sort of drill down that in our watch cooking segment. You had some interesting thoughts, Henry? Yeah, I, I guess um, the interesting thought there was uh, what made me think about the other day when we were having our sushi eating uh, sort of uh, rendezvous was yeah. uh, the idea of using food as a medium to connect with other people. Yeah. And I guess... Historically, food has always been a thing that brought people together. You know, we talk about Sunday roasts, for example. Yeah. Then we talk about, uh, you know, uh, Christmas lunches, for example. So it's just this idea of attaching yeah. some sort of celebration or yeah. event or people with food. Yeah. Um, I find that an interesting yeah. concept. Well, yeah. And I think, yeah, food's one of the, I mean, because I was saying food, like, everyone needs food. Um, mm. And I think, uh, yeah, like it's one of the things that can really bring people, um, bring people together. And look, I'm sure, you know, I'm not sort of, I don't know much about like, I'm not, I'm not sure it's history, but like, you know, sort of the, the evolution of, of the human species, of just sort of animals in general. But I'm mm. sure there's some benefit, or there's some sort of evolutionary benefit behind mm. sort of eating as a, as a community. Maybe because like people hunted, not like people, but like maybe because mm. hunting occurred in packs. So you'd hunt in packs and then there are many of you. Packs, I'm not celebrating, <laughs> but just like you're all there, so you start eating. Eating? Like, yeah. how, how many things hunt alone? I wouldn't say, I wouldn't, I, I, I would, yeah, I, I wouldn't think there'd be that, that, that many um, animals that sort of hunt individually. Crocodiles? Do they hunt alone? Ah, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't They know. don't seem like a sharing type. That's true, actually. But Pythons? <laughs> They don't seem like a sharing type. But, like, but then how do they feed their kids? Because like... They don't feed the kids. I mean, don't snakes eat their own eggs or something? Is it a thing? Do I don't know. Yeah. I mean, fair. Because <laughs> I guess, like, one, one of the... I mean, you know, I guess, you know, when, when, when I was younger, and even now, like, you know, sort of get around the dinner table as a family and eat mm. food. And so, I mean, I assume, like, I don't know, most animals would, who have offspring, would, like, you know, catch food and then bring mm. it to... Their, their, home, quote yeah, yeah, and then eat, and I guess that's one of the reasons why people would gather to eat is because, like, I don't know, they their children they can't catch their own food, mm. so they come and eat when everyone else is eating. Mm. But yeah, no, like obviously there's sort of um, a lot of benefits um, with regards to sort of gathering for a meal, and yeah, like it's good fun. Like we 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 met up with a friend, to, a very good friend of ours today for for two meals, I guess. Yeah, exactly for yeah. two meals. Yeah. It, it it's I find it's just interesting because obviously these days businesses you know have made it um, such an integral part of daily life you know yeah. food restaurants cafes yeah. etc yeah. such a big enterprise yeah um, big industry really if you mm. think about it and mm. how far it reaches from you know producer all the way to being served whatever it is on the table 
Yeah, it is. And I think, and, and, and we've turned, you know, what should be like a nice gathering of friends to just enjoy a meal. Mm. We've turned that into just, what do you call it, gluttony? <laughs> gluttony. Try and eat as much of it as we can. Indigestion, How maybe. much sushi did we eat? I think we ate 13 rolls. Each? Uh, well, in total, but they were full rolls before they, you know, when we buy them from the store, mm. uh, we buy the halved sort of roll. So it becomes 26. How, how, how long is a roll? Like, that, that's a good question. I would say probably a, oh. a foot long. Oh, is it a foot long? I, I think. have no idea. No, I don't think it's a foot long. It's probably, yeah, 30 centimeters. That's a foot. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah roughly. So. Yeah. Oh, that's true. I thought it, yeah. So we is ate it, I suppose. 13 oh. feet of sushi. That's a good way to think about it, actually. Yeah. It sounds more impressive than exactly. 13 rolls, right? Yeah, that's like... I mean, if you're a six-foot-tall person, that's two yeah. and a bit people of... Su- like, well, height-wise of sushi. It's pretty good. You know what we should have done? We should have done an Eat Your Height and Sushi Challenge. I reckon that's quite achievable. You're... Oh, no. Henry. <laughs> this is how... We, we did a Subway Challenge where we had to eat our height in Subways. And we, we only ate half our height. Our height in sushi. But I don't know, but like the issue with subways is they are far denser. Exactly. I I think it's possible. To eat your height in sushi. sushi. I reckon it's possible. What's another food that you reckon you, you can eat your height in? Uh, height. A baguette? Can you eat your no, height in baguette? That's like eating, <laughs> no, no, that's like, that's like the subway <laughs> challenge though. Yeah, but without feeling though. Because with the subway we had no, feeling. But then bread, bread is very feeling. Yeah, we had, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So... So you you think that without the filling, mm. you you can't eat your height in subway? No, because we you, you, we ate our respective height, half our respective what, what heights about, in subway. Yeah. So without the filling, what what about eating your height in croissants? Even though like they're they're not. No, no, that's even more impossible because croissants are just butter. Yeah, that's true. You'll feel full quite quickly. Baguettes. Well, that's an interesting challenge, actually. Baguettes would you probably would just be you know I don't know three baguettes at no most. what. No, no your height, like, a base of height. Yeah, how no, big no. are the baguettes you oh, buy? Oh, whatever length. Six. They have to be eighty. Do you reckon they're eighty centimeters? No, eighty. They are definitely eighty. Centimeters. Sixty centimeters. Yeah, they you reckon are. they're sixty centimeters yeah, baguettes? They are. Yeah, sixty yeah. centimeters. Uh, I, I reckon yeah. sixty centimeters. So you, yeah, you think you can true. eat one hundred and eighty? Whatever. Let's say yeah, one hundred three of centimeters. those. Depends. I reckon it's a possibility without the fillings because yeah. I'm not sure. Really? I don't know. Anyway, look, time has flown by, Henry. <laughs> Maybe we need to... I mean, we, we have so much to discuss. But sadly, we you know, place ourselves under some very strict restrictions where it's 30 minutes an episode. Mm. But, you know... We should place the same restrictions on our food intake. No, definitely. Exactly. <laughs> That's true. We've got literally the exact opposite <laughs> where it's just no restrictions whatsoever. <laughs> Anyway, it's good. It's good seeing you, Henry. No, indeed, um, Shepard. No, thank you for having me again. No, no worries. And thanks to everyone for listening. Again, check out our Instagram page at saba.lira. That's S-A-B-A-H dot L-I-R-A. Um, and yeah, like and subscribe. Tell a friend. Tell an enemy. Tell a frenemy. Mm. Tell a stranger. Tell whoever. Exactly. Tell anyway. your recent friend, exactly. new made friends, exactly. old friends. You know. Until then, um, yeah, hopefully remain friends. Indeed. See you later.